0: Thank you. Um, well, before we get going, I just want to thank all of you all for coming out. It's nice to see like, so many nice and familiar faces and faces I don't know and, and faces. So, um, so thank you all for coming out. And I want to thank Skylight for hosting this event. I lived in L.A. for about a decade and um, Skylight has always been my favorite bookstore so it's a super honor and a huge, huge privilege to be here at my favorite bookstore to, to celebrate this anthology. And finally, I want to thank my contributors because I don't get to see these people enough in person and so thank you to you all for just being wonderful and generous and good-spirited especially since this book has been in production for like two years now and I, I've stopped counting the emails that I've sent to you and so no one none of you have said like stop bothering me with requests um and and it's super super wonderful and super super generous of of all of you um in lieu of reading anything that I put into the book I decided that I would like to talk a little bit about how I came to the subject of surveillance because a question I get asked and ask myself is is like who is this guy and why does he have anything to say about this this topic um and so, so I'll, I'll talk about that. Then I'll introduce the readers, and they'll they'll show you their like wonderful contribu- uh contributions to the book. So I, I came to this topic not I, I'll admit not having like particularly strong political convictions to it. Um, I, I think like everyone else, though, when the news of the Snowden revelations broke, I felt like a particular and helpless kind of outrage that I, I sort of associated with a lot of my political outrage. Like, oh, this is horrible, and. I can't do anything about it. Um, but, you know, when the Snowden revelations did did break, what I felt, interestingly enough, was a sense of complicity. Um, I felt like here is here's a topic, surveillance, which not only do I feel particularly outraged about, but, oh, wow, I, I surveil other people all the time. Um, I, I participated in the forms of corporate surveillance that we're all pretty familiar with. Um, not so long before that news broke, my neighbor had asked me to um, spy <laughs> spy on her father who was babysitting their their kid. Um, and so I, I looked through the window to see see if he was doing that. Um, and, and and she may or may not be here tonight. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and also you know, around the same time my wife and I bought a baby monitor to watch our, our infant son as he was as he was sleeping and having the baby monitor you know it was it was sort of a on one hand we could watch him and know that he wasn't asphyxiating to death while he was sleeping which was a great comfort but on the other hand um it occurred to me this is kind of messed up to train a camera at a you know six inches from a kid's head and, and watch him all the time while he's sleeping and um and it's it's even more messed up than that right because it it only took a little bit of digging to find out that not only could i watch my son while you're sleeping but those baby especially the internet uh connected cameras are hackable and in in fact their search engines designed where you can go in and and search for feeds of people's babies essentially to watch while they're sleeping or um talk through the microphone creepily enough and so uh yeah yeah. it's 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 like it's, it's messed up stuff um and here I was, you know uh, here I was participating in, in this sort of surveillance culture, this this surveillance thing that we all participate with. And and as I was thinking about this, I realized that well it's not just when he's sleeping that my son's gonna be spied on essentially, but it's it's all of his life that he's going to be watched. And in fact, it's all of our lives that we you know we're we're watched. Um you know, not only is it just spooky, sort of clandestine government surveillance, but there's corporate surveillance. There's neighbors spying on neighbors. Um, watching, watching is a watching other people and being watched is a big, big part of our lives. Um, and most of the time, I would say that it's something that we consent to. At least implicitly, we consent to it, um, in, and we're aware of it. And we sort of think that we're aware of it, even if it doesn't. We'd, if we're aware of it, we might not be aware of the co- the cost of it. And I, I guess I would say that, you know, as I was thinking about this book and, and doing my research, one thing I found is, is that there are, there are groups that have shown pretty convincingly that surveillance does come at a cost, and that, that cost seems to be free expression. Um, when people know that they are being watched, um, we, censor, we censor ourselves. Um, and so the more I was watching, like thinking about this book and thinking about this topic, the more I thought, wow, this is way, 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 way over my head. Um, and this topic is way too big for me to tackle on my own. And so, um, luckily, like super luckily, I have a lot of very talented friends. Um, and I began sending emails and asking if they wanted to put this book together. And everyone said yes. And so, this is this is the book that we've this is the book that we're here to celebrate today. Um, I would say like I'm really really proud of this book for a bunch of reasons. I, I think you'll find that it's really good like the stories that I got sent are all really, really good and they're all really, really diverse. They're really good and really diverse and they're from like super talented and wonderful writers um, many of whom you know and many of whom you're gonna know really really well uh, in the in the coming years. but I think what I'm most proud about this book is the way that every story in it talks about and examines the impact of surveillance or watching on the human lives on other people. Whether that, you know, whether you're a, a Google designer who's being hunted and haunted by your own invention, or you're a pregnant woman who feels the eyes of all of society on her, or you're a human drone um, who's been made more of a tool than a person by the military, or you're a muse- museum curator uh, who, Who's very gaze traps a painting and forces that painting to be just one thing. Um, all of these stories investigate sort of the cost of surveillance or what surveillance does to to people and to the people who are both uh, watching it and being watched. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about the book and I hope you're really, really excited about the book as well. So what, what I'll do is I will read the, the impressive bios of these contributors and then the impressive readers will get up and read impressively. And then we can, you know, drink wine and eat cheese and... and
1: Deface
0: books. Yeah, exactly. Deface books, as Skylight wants. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'll I'll read it in the order that they're going to be reading. Um, So Miles Klee is an editor for the web culture site The Daily Dot, as well as the author of Ivyland from OR Books and the story collection True-False from OR Books as well. His essays, reportage, fiction, and satire have appeared in Vanity Fair, Lapham's Quarterly, The Owl, Guernica, The Collages, and elsewhere. Um. Then up will be Alexis Landau, who studied at Vassar College and received her MFA from Emerson College and a PhD from the University of Southern California in English Literature and Creative Writing, along with me, we're buds. Um, Her first novel, The Empire of the Senses, is really, really good and was published by Pantheon Books in the spring of 2015. She lives with her husband and their two children uh, not so far away from here in in L.A. Then Amy Bender um, is the author of five books, the most recent is the Color, Mas- the Color Master, which was a New York Times notable book of 2013. Her short fiction has been published in Granta, Harper's, The Paris Review, and more, as well as heard on This American Life. Uh, she lives here in L.A. and teaches at USC. And then finally up will be Cory Doctorow, who is a science fiction author, activist, journalist, blogger, the co-editor of Boing Boing, and the author of the YA graphic novel In real life, Um, the nonfiction book "Information Doesn't Want to Be Free," the young adult novels "Homeland," "Pirate Cinema," "Little Brother," and others, and the novels for adults like "The Rapture of the Nerds" and "Makers." He is the former European director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and co-founder of the UK Open Rights Group. He's born in Toronto, Canada, and now lives, you know, thankfully here in LA. So please give a round of applause for all of our, our wonderful contributors and sit back and enjoy.
1: Yeah, I probably should have been
2: closer
1: to the front. Sorry about that. Um, Hi. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Skylight. I just moved across the country to this neighborhood, like four blocks away at the beginning of this year, and I've spent like $400 here so far. Um, So it's really great to be reading at my beloved new local. I like that. Um, This... Oh, and thank you to the other great readers who I'm a little starstruck by. Um, And you're welcome for breaking the ice right now. Um, This is a story called Drone. I'll just read the first half because, whatever. Um, Yeah. The president's coma had taken a turn for the worse. She was dead. The VP shot himself before they could do the oath. Whoever came next in line met the void, called the wars off, and undid the draft. Those of us in the last week of boot woke at dawn, synchronized, to find the top brass had already split. First thing we did was whoop it up. Then we showered and set out to the women's barracks to get it on. The women had had the same idea. We collided over the mortar range, which was dry and pockmarked and not ideal for fucking. But in the party that ensued, we all got laid except Taylor, who despite running 15 miles a day could just not stop being fat. Taylor's fatness was a joke at first when he couldn't keep up, but soon the joke became myth. We punched him on the pretext that he couldn't feel. A lady soldier half wearing my camo rode me in the hot, dead grass, and I saw a tailor taking shade under the only tree, massaging feet that must have hurt like hell under all that weight. And the party depressed me after two days. By then, I honestly couldn't believe I was me. I hiked to the air base and hitched a place to Jersey, except it was resupplied to Jersey, the goddamn island. I got to London and fit a Southie crew that mugged tourists in the Elephant and Castle pedways. Other gangs raped down there. We mugged. We'd rip cams and phones from helpless fingers to fence in Camden for hash. I'd beat up an Italian for his hat. The hash didn't go far. Kyle burned through it so quick that we had to keep pace to smoke our share. My name is Kyle, too, so they called me Kyle the American. Didn't like sharing my name, not with a gobshite who smelled of rotting vegetables. When the hash went, a game began. First to say Morley's, the name of the foul kebab stand, had to walk down there and buy kebabs for all. Couldn't be another hit, Aliza was explaining sorely. Up, oh, Vernon pointed, and the rest of us shouted also, except Kyle the Englishman, who'd pushed a drunk banker in front of the Jubilee that day, fled into the two o'clock drizzle, all of it, on CCTV. What? Aliza said. She wrote poetry that I read when she'd gone, because I am a sensitive monster. It was okay. The whole UK was okay, except for a low and troubling drone in my head. Anything not loud was a whisper. You said... It, I said. I didn't say Morley's, she cried. Uh, we howled. Howled more when she returned with kebabs. It plays in the mind like I was howling at this weeks later, well after the gang dissolved, when I was tackled and hooded at Paddington by men I never saw. I thrashed and screamed it was just panhandling, but the hood was soaked in fumes and it was a purple bloom that answered. You're awake, I was told. I tasted my snot and spat. It hung inside the hood with me. The bustle of Paddington had silenced. Ears felt pressure. We were in the air. Son, relax. Not so bad as that. There's just protocol for recovering property. You ain't the first, and it's worse if we don't scuttle. Not yet, prop- Yankee cunt. Oh, Jesus, the other man laughed. You didn't pay for that accent, coach, I hope. Son, said the nice one. Son. Didn't load me up or push me out, and I don't like the ones who did. My sister was into the money machine. She was set. I had a cousin who played pro tennis. Me, I was swimming in my own skull. No idea who to blame. Face it, the company trained you. They own what's there, see? Invested. I decided I wouldn't speak. We landed and shuttled to a camp that from smell, I'd say, was downwind of Philly. Looked around, and if I looked as sorry as this lot, I was sad everyone had a black eye or slung arm none could meet another's gaze a drill sergeant came into the tent and told us we were deserters, degenerates subhuman retards for supposing the military disbanded in peacetime deserter with some teeth knocked out said he'd been discharged for self-harm they hauled him off and told us to wave goodbye for good we were too tired not to the weird passed again into normalcy there were meals the exercise was good body juice to the lack of dope I shared a triple bunk with Wilt and Johns always together and much alike so I never clicked who was who we were pals after we got some shape back they fitted us for flamethrowers it was fun torching the straw men but our fuel packs weighed a motherfucking ton job was to penetrate some pines and flush out the ferals who lived there halfway through the officer stopped calling them ferals and started saying mud eaters the mud eaters, inbred swamp trash that walked on all fours had killed a resource exploration crew with rocks the story made us mad Wilt or Johns said they put drugs in the food a dose of giddy insomnia Johns or Wilt disagreed with Wilt or Johns and said they put a hard drive in each head they buzzed I had to admit the barber nicked me bad and elsehood had driven me since some cloud of simple demands we slogged through muck with flamethrowers and chased whatever ran the muddies didn't eat mud they were covered in it, camouflaged Wilts and Johns walking shoulder to shoulder had a snake pit open under their feet by the time we got a rope down the bodies lay together, puffed with poison a fox shadowed me for a whole day's march except that was back in London the animal had trotted soundlessly along a low stone wall that bordered the gardens of Burrow High, perfectly happy to stroll at my side. The sun was the sun the day my brother got into Canada, so bright and close it went through the leaves. We flipped a coin and it rolled into a storm drain, so I told him to hop in the trunk. I'll stop there. Thanks.
3: Thanks, everyone, for coming out on a Thursday night. Um, All right. uh, This story is called What He Was Like. And I'm also just going to read the very beginning. That's just what I prefer. Um, Nadia works at the convenience store a block away from my house. They sell anything from Vaseline to saltines, bruised apples, and floss. I mostly go there for stamps, quarters, and cascade. Nadia is from North India, and she has two teenage sons and one daughter away at college. She praises the daughter and curses the sons. She says her sons are slow. Her daughter, on the other hand, is studious and diligent and always tries to please. Similar to you, she adds. I stop by the store maybe once a week, sometimes twice. Nadia has taken a liking to me. She usually comments on my appearance, which at first made me uncomfortable, but now I have gotten used to it, and I realize it's just something she does. Scrutinizing my face, she will say that I look tired or that I have lost weight. I tell her that I always look tired. Once she asked me about my eyebrows because she liked the shape. Another time she wondered about the small blonde hairs on my upper lip. How'd you get rid of them, she asked from behind the counter. Yesterday when I ran into the store for a bottle of water, dressed in black jeans and a white button-down shirt for teaching, Nadia raised her eyebrows, impressed, and told me I should wear makeup more often. You look better today, she said, pinching her cheeks. More color. Oftentimes it seems as if she's squinting into the sun, her own long, shapely eyebrows drawn together, Her skin reminds me of how tea looks when clouded with milk. A few gray strands glint in her light brown hair, which she has recently cut because she says it's easier this way. I ask her if her husband liked her long hair better, but she laughs bitterly and says he doesn't care at all. I ask this only because my husband prefers long hair to short and was disappointed when I cut it off last summer. Since then, my hair has grown back longer than it ever was, past my shoulder blades. Nadia's husband sporadically appears in a gray BMW with tinted windows. He owns the store. On an odd Tuesday morning or late Friday afternoon, he'll pull up on the curb and check things out. He has salt and pepper hair and a beard trimmed close to his face. She will argue with him about not having enough inventory. He will cajole her into covering another shift. I imagine they also fight behind closed doors because Nadia has said that she hates her life. She tells me this casually, ripping off a neat line of ten stamps from the roll. The coiled up little American flags are released into my open palm. Her sons are stupid and she must help them with their homework every night after working here all day. If not, they will never get into college. Behind her, miniature bottles of Purell gleam on the shelf along with new toothbrushes and disposable razors. Her sons are twins and I have seen one of them riding his bicycle down Lincoln Boulevard, dangerously weaving in and out of traffic, his t-shirt billowing in the wind. She constantly tells me not to have children because children will ruin my life. No more movies, no more vacations, no more anything. All your freedom, gone. I work here day and night to send my daughter to college in Canada. It costs $50,000 a year. I nod, wondering why her daughter is in Canada. The cash register opens, signaled by that high-pitched ring. Instead, she advises a dog is better than a child. She allows my dog into the store, even though dogs aren't allowed. My dog sniffs at all the candy bars and packaged nuts, leaving a slight trail of saliva on the plastic wrappings. When I got pregnant, I felt nervous about going into her store, especially since I knew I was having a son. But I forced myself to go there because we were in dire need of milk and paper towels one morning, and when she saw my protruding stomach, she was solicitous and asked if my hair had grown thicker, if my skin had stayed clear, if I felt sluggish. When I answered each each question, I wondered if she secretly thought my life was ending. Nonetheless, she pressed a special ginger drink from Australia into into my palm for nausea. The dark brown bottle felt cool to the touch. Walking home, I ran my palm along the honeysuckle hedges, the white flowers nestled in the green, giving off a sweet, puckered scent. It was the height of summer, and the jacaranda trees were shedding their lavender petals, crying violet. Bougainvillea sprouted erratically over walls and fences, bursts of magenta and faded orange. I walked up the hill, noticing my shortness of breath, which I had also noticed a few days ago in ballet class during the bar exercises. I placed a hand on my stomach and felt the heaviness there. I could see my next-door neighbor standing outside on her porch, fussing with her potted plants, all succulents, her white hair in a wispy bun. She never leaves her house, and on rainy days the smell of cat piss emanates through her screen door. She has lived on the street for 40 years with her husband, who has gray skin and gray hair, and does not speak. He is eternally busy in their garage, tinkering with a vintage car that seems irreparable. When we first moved here three years ago, she used to stare at us through her living room window. When we ate dinner, I passed the salad, I'd catch a glimpse of her ghostly face peering through the darkened window. Once she took a photograph of us, the flash reflecting off the glass, and I screamed, which my husband thought unnecessarily dramatic. When he confronted her, she explained in a lilting little girl's voice that she was only taking a Polaroid of her cat. After that, we hung curtains in the living room and planted more ficus trees along the border of our property. As I approached my house, she turned around, and the sight of her high forehead, a great expanse of white papery skin, startled me. She fixed her eyes on my face and dropped her rake. The clang of it against the cement set my heart into a frantic throb, as if someone could see it beating under my shirt. I hurried inside, closing the front gate behind me, relieved to find myself safe in our sequestered front yard, enclosed by the thick ficus trees. But I was sweating, and in an instant, I remembered a dream from last night. I looked into the old woman's attic, as if the roof of her house had been lifted off an empty baby crib stood in the middle of the room with faded newspapers scattered on the floor. The crib was old and made of dark wood, cushioned with a few dirty blankets, and bats flew in and out of a broken window. A mobile mobile hung lopsided from the ceiling, circling over the crib. The dreamscape was bathed in monochromatic light, all muted sepia hues as if I were examining an ancient photograph. I wondered where the baby was, and even now, the dream hung in the air as I tried to calm down and reassure myself that this was real life, here in the garden with our nice garden furniture made of weathered teak. The lone table and two chairs planted on the far side of the yard was where my husband and I sometimes drank coffee. Yesterday, sitting there, we'd shared raspberries straight from the carton. This was real. The dream wasn't.
4: one of these. So fun to hear these aloud. Um, What a pleasure to read with the readers here, and thank you, Brian, for putting this together. Very happy to be in it. Um, All right, I also am going to read just a little chunk from the beginning of this story. Um, It's called Viewer Violator. Welcome to this last stage of the exhibit. You've been a very attentive group, and I've enjoyed our time together. If you wish to use the restroom, it's down the hall on the left. If you're using the ladies' room, they've asked us to remind you to knock before you open the stall door, as some of the locks in there are faulty. Are we all back now? Good. This is the final piece we will discuss today. Take a long look. It does indeed resemble things we have all drawn as children. We are not claiming this to be the strongest piece in the collection. We hung it up because of its extraordinary way of coming into being. Yes, I do realize your grandson could do just as well. Indeed, we have children who take classes here who are much more astute already. I could show you the deer in the meadow painting done by our prodigy, Isabel, who is 10 now. It really is a thrill the way the spots on the deer relate to the sunspots in the meadow. She has an excellent sense of composition. But this one came to us by uncommon means, which is why we hang at last. I will tell you, of course. Please stop whispering back there. It was the third or so week since the museum had reopened, for as you may know, we had to close down for several months last fall due to a problem with people touching the work. We had an influx of visitors who liked to feel the texture of the paint or the slopes of the sculptures, and we were not equipped to deal with them. I myself was shocked it was even a problem at all, but believe it or not, one man actually licked the Degas bronze replica of the ballerina with her arms behind her back, left a tongue mark right on her left breast embarrassing for everybody if you ask me but suddenly it seemed dire that we implement some sort of security system to protect ourselves which took months to install. The museum head who I will tell you more about in a minute she was at the front lines of museum security and she thought we could have fixed automatic cans of mace inside the walls next to the paintings that seemed legally problematic but we modified her idea for safety and now if you move up into the 10 inch range the art will sound a small alarm. The ringing yes in each room. I've grown to like it. It sounds to me like tossing rocks in a pond. You folks have been quite well behaved and putting your hands in your pockets is a fine way to temper any urges. As I often say, art is for looking. Your ears get music, your nose gets perfume, your mouth gets food and if you really want to touch things, for goodness sake, you may purchase some $6 clay in the gift shop. we had been back open going on three weeks when the museum had got a notice for a large package arriving in her upstairs office. The museum head is a very busy woman, and she couldn't be bothered while the men from the delivery company lugged it into her. It was wrapped in brown paper, and they said it was from a wealthy benefactor all the way from Georgia who had heard what was happening and wanted to offer up a gift. Now, the museum owner had many phone calls to return, and she was puzzled by the delivery, because who was this benefactor from Georgia, anyway? And really, it is sensible in this day and age to consider the possibility of bombs. So she signed the package away and listened for ticking and then made her phone calls. She is not a very curious woman by nature, and she was at that time going through a divorce, so she clearly had other things on her mind as she did not open the large package all day long. It was hard to overlook, I tell you, being over three feet tall and four feet wide, but she did not even peek until nearly the end of the day. The museum was clearing out by then, and she told me she could hear, even from her office, the little ringing pings coming from the near touching of the paintings downstairs, alerting security. And this made her feel that her expensive renovation had been worth it. Do you folks know what fingertip oil does to a painting? It erodes, like mercury, destroys those brushstrokes. It's some kind of miracle we don't rot each other merely by shaking hands. <laughs> the museum was slowly clearing out it was getting dark early, a night of a new moon and she decided she would now open up the packaging of the mysterious gift and so she, being a meticulous person as you have to be if you're going to run a museum took her pearl handled letter opener and gently sliced open the brown wrap and underneath it was a very large canvas and on the canvas was, what, can you guess? no, it's not what you see here, no It was a simple painting, though, a simple black and white line work appealing for a small measure of time, but like we've said, something you've often seen done better, I'm sure, by your gifted grandchild. She read the attached note. I hope this will address the problem, it said in typed writing, signed by an unreadable scribble. Now, there are certainly many kind benefactors of this museum, perhaps some of you or some of them, but we get our share of pranksters as well. Once, one of our leading donors sent a penny in an envelope with a letter that said it was art and that it cost a $1,000. He laughed like a maniac on the phone when she called him to ask. So when the museum had read this type note, she wasn't sure what to do with it. Was it real? What problem? She thought vaguely insulted. Then she remembered the people touching the paintings and thought perhaps it was a mock painting meant to be touched. But she didn't believe in those either. There are children's museums, she sniffed to herself, and there are adult museums. And if she had her way completely, perhaps the gallery would be like a planetarium, and you'd look at the ceiling through a telescope to observe the paintings hung up as if they were stars. (laughs) She lugged the painting into the hallway, called custodial services to come pick it up, and left the office for a while. She tended to work late those days. It's difficult to go home when your home is newly emptied, or so I imagine. She was gone for about an hour, perhaps to go cry in the restroom. This is a recent divorce. I met him once before at the Holiday Museum party and he seemed perfectly pleasant, conservative, ordinary. He had one of those jowly faces that seemed difficult to shave, like skin water under the rudder of the razor blade. They weren't rude to each other, but very rarely did they act like a couple, if you want to know my opinion. You could always see the space between them. Anyway, he was the one who asked for the divorce, which came apparently completely out of the blue. She confided in me that she's dismayed at how many people have accidentally burst in on her in the restroom stall and found her squatted on the toilet seat, crying. I'll stop there. <laughs>
2: Thank you all. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, I'm Corey. in case you missed the introductions at the start. Uh, Thank you, Brian, for organizing this. Thank you to the co-readers, and thank you to you folks for supporting a local indie bookstore. I'm a recovering local indie bookstore clerk, and it is a rare treasure to have an amazing local indie bookstore in your neighborhood. You are all very lucky, and thank you for coming here and supporting them. So I wrote this story that I'm gonna read to you tonight uh, uh, just a little bit from the middle to Buck the trend. Uh, the story called Scroogled, about 10 years ago uh, I was commissioned by a magazine called Radar to write a story about the day Google turned evil, which I expect sounds great at the pitch meeting. And um, <laughs> 2005, 2006 were interesting years for privacy. Uh, 2005, I had been working at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a civil liberties group in San Francisco. And uh, a guy who worked for AT&T, uh, an engineer named Mark Klein, who just retired, walked in the big pile of papers, and he said, "Um, I worked at the Folsom Street Switching Center where the fiber optic trunk runs through, and my boss asked me to build a secret room and put a beam splitter in the fiber optic trunk and make a copy of the internet for the NSA without a warrant. And this aided my conscience, and so I stole all these documents that explain (laughs) what I did, and I brought them here to you. And that was the beginning of the lawsuits over mass surveillance. It was also the year that um, Yahoo uh, went into China and then having found themselves in China because it was an important market to be in if you saw Mary Meeker's guide to internet trends for next year she said the once in a world lifetime event in which China industrialized is now over and we will never see growth like that again and so Yahoo to be a part of that growth had gone into China (laughs) and they had given the secret police access to dissidents Yahoo mail accounts so that they could be kidnapped and tortured Uh, a few years later, Google pulled out of China, having gone in because Yahoo went there. It used to be that if you wanted Google to do something stupid, just make Yahoo do it first. Now you get Google to do stupid things by making Facebook do them first, hence Google+. Plus. Uh, Google went into China found itself complicit in uh, rounding up dissidents and torturing them. Uh, The um, uh, Chinese police hacked Google's mail servers because they were on the mainland and they were hackable there uh, and figured out who to arrest. And um, Sergey Brin, who was a Soviet émigré and refugee, decided that he couldn't live with himself anymore and unilaterally pulled the company out of China. But they're back again. So a lot's happened in the last 20 years that people have been warning about surveillance in the internet. Uh, uh, There have been fresh revelations about the scope of surveillance, the risks of surveillance. Um, What there wasn't for 20 years was uh, any success in convincing anyone to care about it. Uh, for 20 years, we spectacularly failed to get anyone to give a shit about the fact that surveillance was increasing monotonically, exponentially, with no end in sight. Um, but a funny thing happened on the way to this decade, which is that somewhere in there, we crossed peak indifference to surveillance. So, like, not peak surveillance by any means, right? We have Internet of Things, baby monitors. San Francisco, a couple of months ago, there was a cause celeb because this woman walked into her three-year-old's bedroom, found the baby monitors swearing at him. When she walked in, the baby monitor's steerable camera turned around to look at her. Creepy voice dude said, "Uh uh-oh, mom's in the room and disconnected. Uh, We now have Internet of Things (laughs) rectal thermometers. We have Internet of Things uh, pacemakers. The uh, prospects for surveillance are really without end. I speak in my professional capacity as a dystopian science fiction writer. Uh, When you see those videos where people walk into houses and it's the Internet of Things and they look like they've stepped off the set of Tron and they wave their hand and the lights turn on and they say tea, black, earl, grey, hot, and the kitchen springs into action. That's a house in which every square inch is covered by a camera and a microphone. And so the potential for surveillance is endless. And peak indifference to surveillance, well, it's good news, right? Because a, a thing happens when you hit peaks or peak indifference, which is that Your strategy switches from getting people to care about surveillance to convincing them when their lives have been destroyed by it that there's something that they can do. Right to, to avert privacy nihilism rather than convince people that privacy matters. It's a bit like peak indifference to smoking. Right, There was a long time in which uh, it was impossible to get people to care about smoking, thanks in part to a disinformation campaign about smoking. You may have noticed that in the surveillance wars, there are a lot of people who spend a lot of money on their own privacy who keep insisting that privacy is dead. Mark Zuckerberg bought the four houses on either side of his house in Silicon Valley, uh, and then A 100 acres of forest around his uh, summer home in Hawaii just to keep them undeveloped. Eric Schmidt, uh, who was the CEO of Google, uh, forbade anyone from Google from talking to CNET after a CNET reporter looked up the details of Eric Schmidt's uh, life using Google. Um, (laughs) These people have said privacy is dead. What they mean is I would be richer if privacy were dead. Uh, And um, at a certain point when peak indifference arrived with smoking, It suddenly started to occur to people that it wasn't uh, just that as uh, in this kind of passive voice smoking happened, but rather people convinced you to smoke and tried very hard to convince you that there was nothing you could do but smoke. And that once you had cancer, you might as well keep on smoking. And we got sort of cancer nihilism. But as time ticked by, we went beyond that and into cancer Uh, rejection, people actually shifting the norms, the markets, the laws, Uh, even the technology and the architecture of smoking so you couldn't smoke in buildings anymore and that's what's happening with privacy when people show up monotonically every couple of weeks to say my life and the life of the people I love has just been destroyed by some horrific disclosure what do I do? We can tell them who's responsible and we can get them to do something about it. I went to this crazy war game that the Rand Corporation put on a couple of months ago this (laughs) multi-stakeholder event with cops and spooks, civil libertarians, technology people from all across the spectrum, and it was one of those things where every couple of minutes someone walks in the room and says, all right, you're the president's team for rebuilding the nation, and this cyber attack has now taken down the finance system. What are you going to do now? You've got five minutes to talk it over. And whenever anyone's solution was, well, I know, we'll just invade everyone's privacy, all the cops and spooks in the room went, no, 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 that's a terrible idea. <laughs> and I couldn't figure it out until one of them said the magic words, Office of Personnel Management. Because the Office of Personnel Management is the U.S. federal agency responsible for giving people security clearance. And last year they were hacked by the Chinese government. And everyone who's ever applied for security clearance in America now has all of the details that you have to give when you apply for security clearance in the hands of their adversaries. When you apply for security clearance, they want to know everything that could ever be used to blackmail you. If your mom attempted suicide, if your brother's addicted to heroin, if you're in the closet about being gay, all of those things go in your OPM file. All of those things were hacked. So um, this suggests now, this peak indifference moment, that we can make a difference, that we can build a future which is technological, yes, but one in which people are sensors and not things to be sensed, an internet of things in which people are not part of the things. Um, and it matters, because without the space to conduct our lives off the record, without the space to decide whether or not we are going to disclose the intimate facts of our lives, we can't really effect change. If you think about what life was like 50 years ago, 70 years ago, in living memory, in living memory, it was illegal for people with different skin tones to be married. It was illegal for people of the same gender to be married. It was illegal to smoke weed, right? How did we get to the place where today, all of those things are legal or becoming legal. Probably by next November, smoking weed will be legal recreationally in, in the United States and Canada, where I'm from. It'll be legal nationally within a couple of months. We'll beat you to it, just just by a little. Uh, and the way we got there is by people choosing the time and manner in which they disclose the facts of their lives, the intimate facts of their lives, to the people around them, and stepped forward and took that very brave step and said, uh, that thing that everyone's decided is beyond the pale. It's a thing that I do every day, and that matters to me and if you love me you will take my cause up and by choosing the moment of their disclosure we were able to affect this enormous social change and unless you think that in 50 years you will sit around the Christmas table with your great-grandchildren who will say to you grandma and grandpa explain to me how it was that in 2016 we achieved the pinnacle of social justice and nothing has had to change since then people that you love right now today that you care about, have things that they have never told you about, things that they will choose the time and manner of the disclosure of. And without the ability to choose when that moment happens, we will never give them the justice that they all deserve. So I'm going to read to you briefly from Scroogled, which is a story about that kind of disclosure. I will note for the record that there is an amazing free audio version of this that Will Wheaton read that is much better than I will ever read. If you Google Will Wheaton and Scroogled, you will find it. So I urge you to listen to Will's reading. It is the best reading anyone's done of any of my fiction. It's why I hired him to read a couple of my books afterwards. He's amazing. So here we go. Uh, The setup is uh, Guy Works for Google has come back into the country. Uh, from a holiday in Mexico. The guy from the DHS uh, looks up all of the ads that have ever been shown to him on Google and from that infers things about him and asks him questions. And so when he gets home, he uh, calls up a fellow Googler who invites him out for a morning dog walk in uh, a park in San Francisco. Her name is Maya. Maya, he said, what do you know about Google and the DHS? She stiffened as soon as he asked the question. One of the dogs began to whine. She looked around then nodded up at the tennis courts. Top of the light pole there? Don't look. She said, that's one of our Muni Wi-Fi access points. Wide-angle webcam. Face away from it when you talk. In the grand scheme of things, it hadn't cost Google much to wire the city with webcams, especially when measured against the ability to serve ads based on where people were sitting. Greg hadn't paid much attention to the cameras on all those access points when uh, paid much attention when the cameras and all those access points went public. There had been a day's worth of blog storm while people played with a new all-seeing toy, zooming in on various prostitute cruising areas. But after a while, the excitement blew over. Feeling silly, Greg mumbled, "'You're joking.' "'Come with me,' she said, turning away from the pool." The dogs weren't happy about cutting their walk short and expressed their displeasure in the kitchen as Maya made coffee. "'We brokered a compromise with the DHS,' she said, reaching for the milk. "'They agreed to stop fishing through our search records, and we agreed to let them see what ads were displayed to users.' Greg felt sick." why? Don't tell me Yahoo is doing it already. No, no. Well, yeah, sure. Yahoo is doing it, but that wasn't the reason Google went along. You know, Republicans hate Google. We're overwhelmingly registered Democratic, so we're doing what we can to make peace with them before they clobber us. This isn't PII person identifying information, the toxic smog of the information age. It's just metadata. So it's only slightly evil. (laughs) While the intrigue then, Maya sighed and hugged the lab that was butting her knee with its huge head the spooks are like lice. They get everywhere. They, they show up at our meetings. It's like being in some Soviet ministry. And the security clearance. We're divided into these two camps, the cleared and the suspect. We all know who isn't cleared, but no one knows why. I'm cleared. Lucky for me, being a dyke no longer disqualifies you. No cleared pe- person would deign to have lunch with an unclearable. Greg felt very tired. "'So I guess I'm lucky I got out of the airport alive. "'I might have ended up disappeared if it had gone badly, huh?' "'Maya stared at him intently. "'He waited for an answer. "'What?' "'I'm about to tell you something, but you can't ever repeat it, okay?' "'Um, you're not in a terrorist cell, are you?' "'Nothing so simple. "'Here's the deal.' Airport DHS scrutiny is a gating function. It lets the spooks narrow down their search criteria. Once you get pulled aside for secondary at the border, you become a person of interest, and they never, ever let up. They'll scan webcams for your face and gait, read your mail, monitor your searches. I thought you said the courts wouldn't let them... The courts wouldn't let them indiscriminately Google you. After you're in the system, it becomes selective search, all legal, and once they start Googling you, they always find something. All your data is fed into a big hopper that checks for suspicious patterns using deviation from statistical norms to nail you. Greg felt like he was going to throw up. How the hell did this happen? Google was a good place. Don't be evil, right? Right. That was the corporate motto, and for Greg, it had been a huge part of why he'd taken his computer science PhD from Stanford directly to Mountain View. Maya replied with a hard-edged laugh, Don't be evil. Come on, Greg. Our lobbying group is that same bunch of crypto-fascists tied to, that tried to swift boat carry. We popped our evil cherry a long time ago. They were quiet for a minute. It started in China she went on finally. Once we moved our servers onto the mainland, they went under Chinese jurisdiction. Greg sighed. He knew Google's reach all too well. Every time you visited a page with Google Ads on it or used Google Maps or Google Mail, even if you sent mail to a Gmail account, the company diligently collected your info. Recently, the site's search optimization software began using the data to tailor web searches to individual users. It proved to be a revolutionary tool for advertisers. An authoritarian government would have other purposes in mind. They were using us to build profiles of people, she went on. When they had someone they wanted to arrest, they'd come to us and find a reason why. There's hardly anything you can do on the net that isn't illegal in China. Greg shook his head. Why do they have to put all the servers in China? The government said they'd block us otherwise. And Yahoo was there. They both made faces. Somewhere along the way, the employees at Google had become obsessed with Yahoo, more concerned with what the competition was doing than how their own company was performing. So we did it. But a lot of us didn't like the idea. Maya sipped her coffee and lowered her voice. One of her dogs sniffed insistently under Greg's chair. Almost immediately, the Chinese asked us to start censoring search results, Maya said. Google agreed. The company line was hilarious. We're not doing evil. We're giving consumers access to a better search tool. If we showed them the search results they couldn't get to, well, that would just frustrate them. It would be a bad user experience. <laughs> now what? Google pushed a dog away from him. Maya looked hurt. Now you're a person of interest, Greg. You're Google stalked. Now you live your life with someone constantly looking over your shoulder. You know the mission statement, right? organize the world's information, everything. Give it five years, we'll know how many turds were in the bowl before you flushed. Combine that with automated suspicion of anyone who matches a statistical picture of a bad guy and you are (laughs) squiggled. Totally, she nodded. Maya took both labs down the hall to the bedroom. He heard a muffled argument with her girlfriend and she came back alone. I can fix this, she said in an urgent whisper. After the Chinese started rounding up people, my pod mates and I made it our 20% project to fuck with them. Among Google's business innovations was a rule that required every employee to donate 20% of her time to high-minded pet projects. We call it the Google Cleaner. It goes deep into the database and statistically normalizes you. Your searches, your Gmail histograms, your browsing patterns, all of it. Greg, I can Google clean you. It's the only way. I don't want you to get into trouble. She shook her head. It's too late for me. Ever since I built the, every day since I built the damn thing has been borrowed time. Now it's just a matter of time, a matter of waiting for someone to point out my expertise in history to the DHS and oh, I don't know, whatever it is they do to people like me in the war on abstract nouns. Thank you.